This episode of the Copy Blogger Podcast is brought to you by Digital Commerce Partners. Every online business needs traffic, but the wrong traffic is worthless. And if you're paying for traffic that doesn't convert, it's worse than worthless. What you need are qualified prospects primed to purchase your digital products and services. Digital Commerce Partners offers a strategic approach to traffic that helps your business win big. Since 2006, Copyblogger founder Brian Clark has been teaching creative content marketing and effective SEO. And we've practiced what we preached, building an eight-figure bootstrapped software, online education, and hosting business. Now, you're the one with the great digital products, maybe an online course, virtual community, or a SaaS product. And you've got a tried and true sales funnel that converts the right people into customers. Well, it's time to fill that funnel. Not with any old traffic. You need your type of people. And our strategic content marketing process will bring them to you. New customers are the lifeblood of your digital business. And yet it's the quality of your products and services that will ultimately determine your level of success. With digital commerce as your partner, the return on investment will be clear. Your existing offers will be more profitable and you can focus on developing new products and growing your brand. We build profitable digital commerce products and businesses for ourselves and those we work with. For us, providing content marketing and SEO services to clients was the last step, not the first. As the agency production arm of content marketing pioneer Copyblogger, Digital Commerce Partners works with you to deliver the prospects you need to succeed. Let's explore how we can help your business win. To learn more, simply go to digitalcommerce.com. That's digitalcommerce.com. Hello, welcome to the Copy Blogger Podcast. My name is Tim Stoddart. Thank you so much for joining me. On this week's episode, I speak with Thomas Bevan. Thomas is a writer and a crypto enthusiast. So much of the crypto world is built around hype, FOMO, and excitement. Yet there is much unknown about how crypto will impact our world and our digital economies. Thomas writes a weekly article speculating what he think may happen and how these changes are going to affect those of us who live in the creator economy. Thomas makes a great comparison of this decade to the Roaring Twenties. There are many similarities. In the Roaring Twenties, and by that I mean the 1920s, the United States was on the back end of the Spanish flu pandemic and was on the tail end of World War I. As a partial result, we found ourselves in a rebellious new decade where art, finances, and capital were permeating through the entire society. In our conversation, Thomas and I speak about the similarities and how crypto could lead to a similar decade, which he calls the Soaring Twenties. History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Thomas Bevan. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I am really looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, I start every episode with the same question. The background photo of your Twitter bio. Tell me what it is and what it means to you. Right, let me let me think. The background, <laughs> no, this, this is a good one. If you'd have asked me a little while ago, it was just some generic thing. It would have been a terrible answer, but just by a stroke of good fortune, my background photo is, um, it's an NFT that my friend Craig made. 
and very kindly gave to me. And mm. um, it's it's an NFT of Paris, of the Eiffel Tower, and it's made out of binary, um, so zeros, zeros, Xs. Um, and what it is, is in one of my essays, when I was talking about NFTs and art and the future, I was um, comparing the present moment to the 1920s. And I said that, you know, in the 1920s, the lost generation where they hung out and created was Paris. And I said that today our Paris is the internet. So it's a picture of that. I love that. That is a perfect segue to what I am hoping to get into. NFTs are fascinating. I don't think mm -hmm. anybody isn't aware of them at this point. You know, even just three months ago, I had a couple of people on my podcast talking about NFTs. And when I would publish it, I'd get a couple of DMs like, you know, what the hell is this? And I wrote a really in-depth article just trying to articulate how they works and how tokenization is going to play such a big role in the future. And, mm -hmm. and through that, I found a really brilliant article that you wrote. And uh, side note, you're a really great writer, Tom. Um, oh, thank compliment you. You know, I like to compliment you on your writing. And so moving into it, you call it the soaring 20s. I think mm -hmm. that is a great comparison. And I would love for you to elaborate in as much depth as you're willing to about what the soaring 20s are and how you foresee this playing out. Right. Well, first of all, with the name itself, it's the soaring 20s, which is obviously play on the roaring 20s. And sure. I think part of that is the fact that, um, as I think it was Fukuyama said, um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. So in many ways, I see this decade that we're in now almost being a rhyming version of the 1920s, where, you know, they had um, war and the Spanish flu. And so the start of the decade was very tumultuous and awful. But then as a result of that, I think that made people just generally take stock on life and creativity and all these kind of things. And then after that, you had a massive both economic and artistic sort of groundswell. And so in a similar way, via things like NFTs and cryptos and so on, I think this decade is going to have a similar um, dynamic. I never thought to compare. I'm a big history nerd. And mm -hmm. I never even thought to compare, what are, what are we going to call it? Like the launching off point of the runway. Obviously, that was the end of World War I. And for mm -hmm. Britain and the United States, it was a huge, almost cash cow, especially for the United States, because they were basically bankrolling the war on both sides. Yeah. Um, and in addition to that, the Spanish flu was terrible. I mean, obviously, we can't go anywhere the last two years without hearing COVID. But I, I think mm -hmm. it's pretty safe to say I'm, I'm not a virologist, but I think it's safe to say Spanish flu was even more devastating than COVID was. So I never yeah. even thought that the runway to that with those circumstances, comparing it to our endless war that the West has been fighting and with mm -hmm. the pandemic. And I think you're right, we could be like gearing up to a point where people are just kind of like, fed up with that and we're just going to have an explosion of of art and music and and culture uh, it's a very optimistic viewpoint yeah i mean that's the um yeah that's the way i see it. and i suppose um you could kind of temper the optimism by saying that i don't think it will be sort of universal in the way that it used to be 
um, before, certainly in the 20th century, because, you know, the way that art and certainly film, uh, music, those kind of things worked is they were very centralised, which makes something have a very more, um, like a mass appeal and a very wider um, market, whereas I think, although you're going to have a lot of artistic energy, I think it's much more um, decentralised, not only because of the tech, but just generally because of just the way the world is now. I mean, one of the things of the COVID situation I noticed is that in the sort of traditional mainstream sense, just celebrities pretty much gone away as a concept. Like, I can't remember the last time I heard any sort of celebrity news at all. And so because of that, I think people have moved to their various sort of niches, their various little patchworks, and it's sort of from that that all this artistic energy is um, going to come. Wow. What an insight. So, so we agree. I love talking about blockchain and NFTs mm -hmm. and crypto because a lot of people think of them as all the same thing. And, and I suppose in a way they are, but they're all going to have really different effects on culture. And I see art and I see NFTs and I keep hearing this word decentralized. And from a mm -hmm. technical standpoint, that's true because there's nobody in charge of the blockchain. I suppose I want to challenge that notion because what I see happening is all it allows for is an even more accelerated rate of the Pareto principle, basically 20% mm -hmm. of the people are going to own 80% of the resources. And from that standpoint, I fear that blockchain is going to be even more centralized because deregulation is essentially what it is that like mm -hmm. forces decentralization. So I think about that a lot and maybe I'm trying to make a point or make a counter argument, but more so I want to hear how that like bounces off of you where you have this vision of just total decentralized artwork and niches and, and like long tail clicks. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess, first of all, I'd say it's definitely more of a hope rather than like an actual, um, this will happen type thing. This is definitely how things will pan out, but I just see the possibility um, kind of of that. And I think with NFTs especially, you've got, you've got two aspects which um, are kind of intertwined. So on the one hand, you've got the, the asset bubble aspect, which is very much going to be um, Pareto-driven. And I think that's the thing that gets the attention at the moment. And, you know, I think that will be... Um, something that will fade but however on the back of all of that sort of both financial interest and i suppose energy and speculation and general interest i think mm -hmm. from that the the tech itself evolves and it's kind of some of the mechanisms like contracts and having fans be more like um investors rather than it being a very passive relationship i think it's through that stuff that you can get more of like a 1000 true fans decentralized kind of ecosystem occurring. Interesting. So I remember somewhere in one of your articles, I think it was the Soaring 20s articles, you say the revolution will not be centralized. So can you just keep going on that? Um, well, yeah, I think in terms of, um, well, what NFTs and 
blockchain and all this stuff sort of theoretically allows you to do as a creator is to completely um, cut out the middlemen and to cut out the traditional um, gatekeepers. Yeah. And, and that is the, like, not necessarily financially, I guess we kind of cross in terminologies here, but in terms of actual cultural production, those are the centralizing forces. You know, there's like five publishing houses, there's maybe half a dozen major studios, you know, everything's a subsidiary of Disney effectively. And all these massively centralized, yeah, and all these massively centralized cultural forces, what all this stuff allows you to do is to just completely sidestep that. And because that means that you're actually managing to capture the vast majority of the value that you earn from what you produce, that means that numbers-wise, you need nowhere near the same amount of audience to actually make a living. And it's through that that it becomes these decentralized hubs. I, I totally agree with that standpoint. The way I think of it, I don't know why this is the analogy that always comes into my mind, but I think of of internal combustion engines. And when mm -hmm. you burn fuel in that way, so much of the actual energy is lost. That energy isn't actually converted into, into work. And when I think of it, for some reason, I don't know, that analogy and that visualization always pops up in my head. I see what we have going on with even Web 2.0, and I just see all of this exhaust in mm -hmm. the creative talent pool, right? And there's just so much fuel in that exhaust that just kind of evaporates into like the nothingness right um yeah that's absolutely it yeah yeah but if if i mean i guess you can make like a literal analogy of, of battery powered i don't really know that much about it so i don't want to say something <laughs> dumb you know but if if there's a new comparison where all of that energy is just converted into maximum work that allows the creator to really pull the most value in exchange for their for their work or their time that that always resonated with me i'm not sure why yeah it, it just makes um if you're just looking at it from a purely monetary standpoint it just makes everything so much more leaner because yeah you're capturing the vast majority of your profits which in turn means you need a much smaller audience and that in turn means you can create much more interesting things because you're yeah, you don't need to appeal to as broad a spectrum. And that in itself makes interest in art. And even with um, even with a lot of the sort of NFT stuff at the moment, even though it is that purely JPEG sort of tulip mania asset bubble aspect, a lot of that stuff is pretty weird, just as, <laughs> just, just as visual things. So it kind of proves the point that strange things can be successful in that dynamic. And um, yeah, it's just what kind of, generates interest with a core group of people versus having to play these games which are normally dictated by these old world gatekeepers to sort of yeah meet certain standards and write in a certain style and have a certain package and yeah so all of that stuff becomes less and less of an issue which engages the artist more and then that in turn makes things more interesting for the audience as well as the sort of contract mechanism in NFTs, which means they can actually be stakeholders in this. So yeah, going back to the engine analogy, that's just much more energy that is being burned. And so the vehicle, so to speak, can just move way faster. Yeah, I, I go for a walk 
with my wife every morning and I live in Nashville and Nashville is a city that real estate is just completely exploding. People are flipping mm-hmm. houses left and right. There's rentals. And every time I'm looking past all these rentals and I see these signs out front with the brokerage and I think of the real estate market and all of the, all of the people that have their hands in the pot with mm-hmm. this transaction. And so, okay. So I'm getting to a point here. There's another article of yours that I read, which basically said tulip mania or Trojan horse. I, I don't remember if that's exactly the title. Yeah. And, yeah. That was it. Yeah. And, and what you did is you saw this, this asset grab and clearly there's some direct analogies to the tulip mania craze. I think yeah. Was, what in, in Denmark, maybe it um, was um, Holland, um, Amsterdam in Dutch. the 17th century. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was like 16, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And, and I love how you put in the comparison that maybe this current craze isn't actually, I mean, it's an asset bubble, but more than that, maybe it's just the thing that is introducing how blockchain and smart contracts can work. And it's introducing that into like the public lexicon. And yeah. so- now, I, like what I was going with with my walk is I look at all these houses and I look at all these for, sign, for sale signs on the front yard and I think to myself, how many of these homeowners are looking at how these silly JPEGs are being transacted upon and think, okay, there's like four or five different people in the way of me selling my house to a buyer. And mm-hmm. why is it that you can't put a token onto your house and then just transact directly through the blockchain? and skip all the middlemen. So that analogy of like getting the most energy out of your work, I think yeah. you're right where this is a, a Trojan horse more so than a bubble where, where this NFT craze is actually introducing all of the different ways that our culture is going to be interrupted basically by, by this tech. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, um, I think with any kind of radically new thing, it does seem to start off initially as a cash grab, as a bubble, but that in turn generates not only a lot of interest and energy and obviously finance, which legitimizes the thing um, straight away. It also, yeah, it also sort of normalizes it to a degree, makes it a legitimate thing. And then once the bubble has died away, the thing itself hasn't disappeared. And then the real work happens. I mean, I guess by comparison, in the in the late 90s, you've got the dot-com bubble. So the internet as we know it today was also an asset bubble. And then when that bubble popped, it was afterwards that you have, you know, your Facebooks and your massive companies kind of come off the back of that. So it's always bubble first, and then that's the Trojan horse for the new thing, and then it grows afterwards. The bubble always comes first i never thought of it in that yeah i I guess that's i mean geez if i really sit back and think about it that's probably going to be the the case for like all types of society interrupting Mm -hmm. inventions or 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 you know new technology yeah because because people aren't going to be interested in something unless there's a yeah there's either a way to make a buck or something like that off at first that's what generates your initial influx of interest because I mean, I mean, with um, yeah, with things like blockchain itself, you can't make that interesting or comprehensible to the average person 
I mean, I know nothing about it technically. You can't make that interesting unless there's some sort of narrative, some sort of hook to it. And as bizarre as it is, I think with an awful lot of um, Web3 stuff, that's selling JPEGs for crazy money, as bizarre <laughs> as that sounds. That seems, to be, that seems to be the thing, because an interesting thing about NFTs is you'll have noticed that you know they're sold in Ethereum and everyone talks about them in terms of Ethereum. Yeah. So, so when a when a punk sells for like crazy money, it doesn't sell for however many hundred thousand dollars, it's however many hundred or thousand ETH. So that in itself legitimizes ETH as a means of currency, even in the in the way that people speak about it. And that in itself is a not insignificant hurdle towards this stuff becoming increasingly legitimized. It's not insignificant when it mm. comes. So I, when I said earlier how it's easy to group all of these things together with cryptocurrencies and blockchain and NFTs, it, I, I think it's easy to group them and, and rightfully mm -hmm. so. But I do think that the cryptocurrency conversation is another one. I mean, I believe mm -hmm. in crypto. Yeah, I, agree with that, yeah. yeah, I, I have... Uh, I, I invest in crypto, I guess, is what you could call it. But mm -hmm. I always push back a little bit on the comment that you just made where people compare it to ETH because I don't personally see that being the case. I, I still think that Ethereum as a standalone currency is completely worthless. It only has value in comparison to the dollar. So I'm curious what what your viewpoint is on that because there's there's like a, a vibe around cryptocurrencies, right? I call them the Bitcoin bros, this, mm -hmm. this crew of like, yeah, fuck the man, fuck the government, fuck inflation. You know, they're mm -hmm. all rigging the system. This is our own thing that nobody can take away from us. But I always look at that and I say like, that's completely wrong because what you have only has value because it is compared because you can exchange it for the dollar mm -hmm. basically. So, so yeah. with the things that we just talked about, how does that, bounce off of you yeah i mean that's very true it's not whether um it's not whether the thing is any good or not it's just in the example i made it's like people are speaking in these terms now like the kind of yeah. it, it leads you towards understanding it which in turn helps to legitimize um the whole thing it's almost like people are speaking more of that language now if you like which mm -hmm. is which is a step. So, so it's more it's more to do with that, um, really. Just, just yeah. It seems to be part of the um, process of moving these things along. And again, like I say, it seems to take the ability to make money in a you know massive returns asset bubble kind of way that gets people on board in that Trojan horse fashion with the whole project, if you like. Sure. So it's. The, the point you're making is that simply by nature of using the word Ethereum, we're continuing mm -hmm. to introduce that vernacular into our culture yeah. to make it more commonplace. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very cool. I, okay, go ahead. No, 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 that was it. Nice. Well, I want to transition a little bit because if... What is the Trojan horse, right? I think the Trojan horse is quote unquote art. There's mm -hmm. the idea that 
I mean, art within itself has always been very investable. I, I think it probably has beat the S&P 500 pretty handedly over the last 20 years or so in terms of the, in terms of like the hedge of storing your money into yeah. art. And so, and so a lot of the people involved in NFTs are artists. And I think from getting to know your writing and getting to know you and the extent that I have as a person, I think that you would call yourself an artist. So mm-hmm. where do you see that line between this is good for the artists because it gives tangibility to what it is they create. And this is bad for the artists because now the only reason to create art is simply to try to, to sell it or try to, you know, introduce it into, uh, into ownership and scarcity. Mm. Well, I guess it, um, it all depends because this stuff is sort of very, it's still very up in the air at the moment. We're talking more about possibilities and potentials rather than yeah. things that actually are at the moment. So I kind of see different um, potential paths. And I suppose, yeah, one more negative or I suppose even more like a business as usual type path would be this is just a new instrument to make money. I mean, I've seen, um, talking of art, yeah, just being this um, thing as a store of value. I mean, people like Damien Hurst are making NFTs now. Um, people have people have listened to nature, so it could just be very much business as usual, that Pareto defined kind of just way of making a lot of money in that sort of very old world art sense. That that's certainly one possibility. I'm sure that will happen. But there's something within the actual nature of the contracts that come with NFTs, which means you can make fans um, much more participants and almost much more investors in the company of you. And that's the thing that's potentially transformative because like I said, that completely upends the traditional art world, um, whatever medium, whether it be film, music, literature, paint, that completely upends the whole way of doing business. And that's the real revolutionary aspect of it, potentially, if it goes that way. Could you explain how that would be the case to somebody that hears you say, okay, fans now become investors? That's a great um, way to put it, but I think yeah. I think it would be difficult for someone to compare that to what it means to be a fan, you know, a follower, basically. We're, we're sure, talking yeah. about followers versus investors. So could you just explain that a bit? Well, I guess... Um... I guess by way of example, let's say, you know, you're kind of really, really into music and you're really into it at that sort of underground level of always finding, you know, always finding new bands. You're really kind of plugged into various music scenes and that kind of thing. Well, what would have happened, um, say, 20 years ago or even just a couple of years ago, is you would go to these gigs, you'd find these bands you'd know they're really good. You'd know that these, they're these sort of unsung, undiscovered people who are clearly going to be huge in the future. And so, you know, you just go to the gigs, you'd enjoy it, you'd buy the CD, and then the band would become massive and you as a fan would become increasingly sort of distant from them and sort of disenfranchised from them. And as they got bigger, you would probably end up liking them 
less and less like you know it's that typical hipster phenomenon of you know i preferred them when they were underground that kind of thing so that's the old example whereas if someone's um distributing music through nfts let's say you might find that same artist they release a record as an nft you're able to buy one of these tokens but as you buying that you actually become an investor because there's something written into the contract which means that you get one percent of all future royalties off that record and then the band become massive and that means both personally and financially you're far more invested in them you want them to succeed because that benefits you and that makes you being a hardcore fan who's sort of really plugged into various underground music scenes both sort of financially and personally rewarding and just mechanisms like that was never existed until pretty much this moment and that's just completely paradigm changing it's certainly paradigm changing i also worry a bit about Seth Godin is it's a guy that I follow really closely, mm-hmm. he's a great writer, and he wrote what I thought was just super insightful. And it was months ago, even before people truly understood the investing slash contract uh, mm-hmm. qualities that come with NFTs. And and he I don't I don't have the article memorized, and I'm and also I want to note that you're not necessarily saying mm-hmm this is what it is and this is what's going to happen. You're just speculating on what yeah, could happen. Potentials, exactly, possibilities, yeah. yeah. And I, I appreciate that because way too many people on Twitter get followings by just saying ridiculously dumb shit as it's fact without and it's, saying... And it's like, blanket as well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, but Seth Godin made the point where when that happens, the art itself no longer becomes like a free mechanism of culture which then Mm -hmm. introduces you to a broader standpoint right like why why would i read the blog post to learn about the bigger message when i could buy a piece of the blog post um Mm -hmm. and yeah like i I worry about that too i worry that art itself is gonna lose the purpose which is to affect somebody emotionally i suppose which is to move yeah. somebody and art is just going to be commoditized um we're speaking in, we're speaking in speculation but mm-hmm. how do you think that could play out and like is that good or bad i mean that is um yeah i mean that is entirely possible but um i guess that's somewhat in the artist's control because no one's saying you have to commoditize everything mm-hmm. you don't have to purely churn out things for the purpose of ever increasing um, profits, you know, no one's saying you can do that. But I suppose what these things do potentially, if we're going to take the optimistic case, is because you are able to um, generate more revenue, get a bigger percent of the pie. You know, your average um, artist of any stripe doesn't necessarily need great amounts of money to just live and you know, create instead of having a day job or something like that. So it could just be that, um, yeah, you, you just create one thing that you either tokenize or don't. That brings in the revenue. And then in turn, you can, you know, you can make things for free. You can do different things. You can be much more free because you've got that financial backing, which doesn't come with any of the strings that would come 
with more of like an old world arrangement. And I suppose with that freedom, you can go on and do um, different things which aren't necessarily commoditized, I suppose you could say. So the Soaring Twenties, are you... Mm. Are you optimistic about the Soaring Twenties? Are you cautiously optimistic? What's well, You've laid out a lot of possibilities, but how does it make you feel? I'll be honest, I kind of, I flip-flop really. Sometimes yeah, it's, you know, sometimes the most exciting um, moment in history, because I suppose, I suppose comparatively as well, if you look back to how things have been recently, I mean, to me, from what I can see, culture has been pretty much static for like, what, 15 years, something like that. You could argue pretty much since the invention of the smartphone. Yeah. Yeah, things have become pretty, I mean, there's always things sort of underground, but just generally the kind of cultural climate, if you like, um, has been fairly sort of staid and gray. And so whether, whether all these technologies we're talking about are necessarily good or bad, I guess at least it's, it's exciting. At least there's sort of possibilities and potentials in there. And so, yeah, because of that, sometimes I'm just absolutely thrilled at what can happen. Then other times, as you know, some of the counterpoints you've made, you think, yeah, could these things go wrong? And could it be even more of a, um, a sort of power law driving force? So that's a bit of a cop-out answer, but yeah, it really varies, I suppose. I feel exactly the same way. And, mm-hmm. and, and thank you for being honest. Again, yeah. maybe I just have like, a, maybe I'm just arrogant and have like a chip on my shoulder, but I, I get annoyed by just the blind optimism that you yeah. see sometimes because it, one, it's just, nobody knows what's going to happen. And I think that's ridiculous. But two, it's, silly to ignore some of the truly truly obvious and glaring potential pitfalls yeah, on the same absolutely, time yeah yeah but at the same time it's like wow you know sometimes i i just sit back for a second i think about all of it and i'm like wow like what a world we could build you know like what a what a potential tool to create like harmonious mm-hmm. relationships with people that have shared interest in exchanging assets right and yeah and so and so i i I totally agree with you with the stagnation of culture like basically as soon as there was technology that that allowed for such extensive network effects then Mm -hmm. it's like everybody has to belong to some kind of standardization or else they get left behind right it's like being able to speak english sort of thing yeah (laughs) like if everybody speaks english and you're the only one that doesn't speak english well like you're totally screwed and the same is true with with smartphones like if everybody is on this platform and and you're not then then you're totally left behind so yeah exactly yeah exactly i guess a lot of that sort of um yeah that sort of very monoculture blandness which like i say seems to have come about with the invention um of the smartphone is not to just make the same old boring talking points about you know what twitter does to your brain and everything but it seems to be the very nature of these things just seem to yeah have this yeah have this effect where for whatever reason algorithms and whatnot it seems to be if you want to create an audience 
you all tend to write the same way and there's various sort of tactics and tricks you use. And I suppose culturally that has a very sort of flattening effect, whereas, yeah, there seems to be a lot less um, variety of actual thought and art, which again is why I veer towards an optimistic case with all this decentralization at, at times, because you have various hubs and various subcultures which mm -hmm. exist in these spaces, and then it can be more sort of free and weird. Again, I'll make the point, the JPEGs are pretty strange, which even though it's not my aesthetic at all, I find that in itself kind of reassuring in a way. I totally agree. And I'll give a personal example. Um, I've wanted to be a writer my whole life as well. It's basically the only like dream I've ever had. Mm -hmm. and, and when I was introduced to content marketing as an entrepreneur, it clicked for me. I was like, wow, like writing doesn't have to be this, this storytelling. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it, it can be, but basically I discovered that I can write and use content marketing as a way to feed myself and make a living as opposed to, you know, having to write a novel. And sure. yeah. one of the people that had a huge impact on me was a guy named Bobby Hundreds because he grew a clothing line, a streetwear brand, which was really urban and, you know, traditionally wouldn't be something that you would have personal stories and, you know, empathy and like vulnerability uh -huh. associated with it. And, and Bobby, he totally changed the mold. He wrote blogs about the people that he met and, the photographers and the streetwear artists and you know the people living in rough circumstances and through writing he grew a company a streetwear brand and like that's unheard of you know what i mean it's uh -huh. never we're able to do those things and so i always felt connected to that subculture of you know urbanization but not like the gangs and violence and nonsense like the real people that just live uh -huh. in this urban subculture and so when Bobby Hundreds and his company of the Hundreds created an NFT project. Like it was the first time where I actually got it, where it's a good thing. I'm not buying this thing because I want to try to flip it. Like I'm buying this thing because like now I own an atom bomb and like I'm part of the club. And exactly. I think that's the part of the club. That, that's exactly the point. Yeah. So what other what other examples do you think there are of that? <sighs> well, I think like I said, I think it's it's still speculating because even though I think um, the potential for all this is there, I think a lot of that aspect of it is um, is underutilized, even though um, it has all the potential for that. But yeah, it's looking forward to these things that I find yeah that I find more interesting because yeah, to use another sort of old world example, which kind of ties into what you were saying, it's like if you look back to I don't know like say sort of punk music in the 80s, um, like American punk music, hardcore, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, every city had its own, had its own label, had its own kind of sound, its own subculture within that, its own sort of fashions within that. And so you had yeah, these, wow. you had these, you know, you, you had like um, Discord in DC, you had Twin Tone in Minneapolis, SST in California had all or that like, kind of or thing. like Blur and Oasis, like the London yeah. versus the Manchester vibe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um 
yeah, all these cities had their own feel and their own music, but they were still kind of interconnected by touring circuits. And so I suppose what I could imagine is, um, yeah, an online equivalent of that, because you, as a fan, you know, you like um, this hundreds club and everything that stands for, but you don't just like that. So there'd be other things which you'd be a part of and you'd, and you'd invest in either sort of emotionally or financially and through that you create your own sort of personal patchwork of meaning and that's what anyone as an individual can potentially do when more creators kind of get on board with this ecosystem yeah and that's that excites me mm. right like and, and this is where i become really optimistic when i think of that possibility yeah amazing well tom I'm so glad that we got to talk. I've been really enjoying your blog. Uh, you and I have kind of shot the shit through Twitter a little bit the last couple of weeks, and I just enjoy your vibe and I enjoy the work you do. Thank you so Thank much you for coming much, on man. my show. Yeah, it's a pleasure, mate. Thank you. Uh, before we sign off, I want to make sure people know where to find you. You have a sub stack. It's kind of a long URL. Do you want to yeah. <laughs> okay. spell it out for everybody? I'll leave yeah, it is. the link in the show notes. It is Thomas J. Bevan, which is B-E-V-A-N dot substack dot com. Excellent. And the blog is called The Commonplace. I highly recommend everybody read it. It's it's very insightful and it's um it's a, a practical viewpoint of what could happen and what and like where we could go in the future. So um Tom, like I said, I really enjoy your writing and, and thank you so much for coming on my show, man. I hope we get to hang thank out. Thank you very much, day. Tim. Yeah, absolutely. Cheers. Thanks, Tim. Bye, brother. See you later.